Hello, I'm Monsignor Jim Losanti. Today, on Personally Speaking, our guest is President Tanya Tetlow. She is the newly appointed president of Fordham University in New York and the first female to have that job. Stay with us. Welcome to Personally Speaking. I'm your host, Monsignor Jim Santi, and Tanya Tetlow, the president of Fordham University, joins me now. On July 1st, Tanya Tetlow, a former law professor who served as president of Loyola University, New Orleans, for the past four years, began her tenure as president of Fordham University. She is the first layperson and the first woman to lead the Jesuit University of New York in its 181st year history. President Tetlow is a graduate of Tulane University and Harvard Law School, and is a former federal prosecutor. She grew up in New Orleans, but said, quote, Fordham is the reason I exist, in a video message to the university community in February. Her parents, Elizabeth and Lewis, met at Fordham as graduate students in the late 1960s, and she was born in New York. President Tetlow is married to Gordon Stewart, and together they're the parents of daughter Lucy, and she's the stepmother of her husband's son, Noah. In February 2022, the Fordham Board of Trustees unanimously elected Tanya Tetlow to serve as president of the Jesuit University. She's here with us today to talk about her life, her deep ties to the Jesuits in Fordham, and the Catholic faith that sustains her. Joining me now, I'm so pleased to welcome to Personally Speaking, President Tanya Tetlow. President Tanya Tetlow is our guest. I'm delighted to have her with us for uh, talking about her new experience as the first a female president of Fordham University. First of all, congratulations on the appointment. Um, but, but I want to go, I'm always more intrigued by uh, family of origin. So uh, your parents, uh, Elizabeth, and what was dad? Dad was Lewis. When you look back now, you're a parent yourself, at what they did right in raising you, what would you best highlight about what they did as parents that made a key difference in your life? They really raised us in faith, both in going to mass and being devout, but also um, they're both highly trained in theology. So dinner mm -hmm. conversations really focused on um, the translations of the Bible and the intellectual content of um, what we could learn. And so I, I experienced faith as um, a deeply intellectual and emotional and values-driven, um, deep-rooted part of my life from the beginning. Mm -hmm. But I think that they impressed upon us the idea that we could worry all we want about the literal truth of the Gospels. The moral point of them was about how you live your life. And they demonstrated that for us. You know, they were the kind of family who if they uh, saw a person who needed help, they'd take them into our home. <laughs> so we had a lot of that growing up, too. <laughs> Isn't that great, though? I wanted to ask you, too, because I was intrigued by it. Our listeners and viewers might be intrigued, too. There are very few of us uh, who can say that we actually rescued our parents. I'm told that you actually rescued your parents. Tell us how that happened. I didn't personally rescue my parents, <laughs> but they were um, 
Uh, no, they they decided as much as they have many graduate degrees and languages between them, the common sense part about evacuating <laughs> for a hurricane was a little bit lacking. So with Katrina, they they decided to stay. Uh-huh. And by day five, when they were still stuck there, they were they were okay. They were their downstairs flooded, but they were upstairs and had food and water. Uh, but we were getting more and more frantic for them to leave. So um, they. Uh, is a graduate student whom they hired all the time to help them with odd jobs around the house, um, pushed them in their canoe to a school. And from the school, they took a helicopter to the interstate where they waited for a day and then another helicopter to the airport. And instead of being put on a plane to somewhere in America, which is what would have happened, I managed to drive to the airport and persuade the soldiers to let me in to go get them. So it was, <laughs> it was not fun at all. But you, but you were relieved, I bet, when you finally oh were goodness. able to put them back together. Uh, when when uh, President Tetlow talks about the experience of Katrina, I know you said that was a life-altering experience for you. One of the guests we had on, and you probably have known him down there, was Drew Brees. And uh, Drew Brees said that in his whole life, his, uh, his faith was important, but football obviously was the center of his life. But that uh, Katrina changed all that, and he realized... Uh, how we are absolutely obligated to do for others, especially those who are hit hard by circumstances like the hurricane. That was his change, and as you know, he's done amazing things for the city of New Orleans. How did it alter or affect your own view of the world? I was, um, how old, maybe in my, uh, early, just turned 30 or so, mm-hmm. and I still found myself really um, reaching for um the sugar highs of status or knowing people or feeling important in the world and katrina just blew all of that apart Mm. um i really understood that the point of life is to help other people and when you're doing that in an intense way it just shuts off the worry voice in your head and the voice that's constantly asking you know what do people think of me you just stop worrying about that and you worry about other people instead. And um, that work of just um, doing absolutely everything you could for your neighbors mm-hmm. um, was transformative for all of us. It was an experience I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy, right. but it's a fundamental part of who I am. Yeah. You know, I was in New York on the day of 9-11 and, and in the week following, there was a different climate Uh People were being patient and loving and supportive and helpful to each other. And it's sounding like what you're saying in Katrina is that the whole community tried to do that one for another. They did. Um, it was a, um, uh, I'm sorry, my puppy is walking in with a sweet <laughs> toy. <laughs> Which is a podcast nightmare. So <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, no, Katrina changed all of us it really made it new orleans such a tight-knit community and it's not that we've sustained all the best parts of that for the years to come but i do think it transformed who we are and and what we value there now one of the things that we learned from new orleans is uh I think they've they taught us many times issues about race and race relations. I just finished reading the very lengthy uh, obituary for Moon Landrau and talking about uh, how, as mayor, he was able to bring together the black and white community. Uh, you're coming from that great city, and we're we're certainly in New York, a community like many others that are divided, unfortunately, by race. What what's your insight into that? Like. 
Have you learned along the way what we need to do to, to finally make us one? Uh, Moon Landrew is a major hero of mine and uh, just no better example of what Jesuit education and Catholic faith <laughs> can embody. So I, I actually yeah. jumped on a plane and went back for that funeral uh, last week. Um, I think uh, what I learned from him about that was the courage it takes sometimes to um, stand up for what's right. And mm -hmm. we can pretend all we want that it's just about getting along and everyone, um, you know, understanding each other. But we have some deep abiding sins in this country that we have to acknowledge to move forward and the ways that we um, keep going along in denial as if that's the past and there's nothing to do with me really um, mm -hmm. are fail to grapple with the fact that that there's an awful lot of work put into the ideology of racism to justify for slavery and then segregation and to mm. undo that we have to be more honest with ourselves and to understand the profound lessons of the catechism of our faith that we are all brothers and sisters equally loved by god and until we fundamentally kind of unravel all the messages we've heard our whole life telling us the opposite mm. we'll never get um we'll never make progress our guest is uh, President Tanya Tetlow of Fordham University. Let me ask you this. You, you hear, and I know I, I hear it in my parish too, that while people have deep regret about what happened in the past, and you touched on some of those things like slavery, you know, I, I haven't heard anybody of, of another race. It's not my problem. Why am I in any way accountable for what generations before did? What do you say to the person who says, not my concern? Well, if you read the Gospels, you'll never really see it's not my concern written anywhere in them. <laughs> and, um, I think that um, understanding that, that the suffering continues, that the ways that some of us have benefited from the suffering in the past continues, right? I mean, you look at the disparity of wealth in this country by race, and it's pretty astonishing. So yeah. I don't think we can sort of keep the money and keep the the swagger that we get of feeling superior and mm. somehow pretend that we're not benefiting from what happened in the past. And the ways that I um, used to ask my law students about this question when I taught was, you know, let's assume right now that you are behind the veil and you decide what race you will be born based mm -hmm. no on nothing more than the opportunities you'll have in your life. So assume um, the consequences of racism, but also all the affirmative action that you imagine in the world, what would you pick? Mm -hmm. And I've never had anyone think that they'd have more opportunities in life if they were born African-American um, as white, uh, wow. because they still do realize it's not just in the past. Yeah, that is still real today. Let's talk a little bit about Jesuit education, which so much formed and shaped you. Um, you know, when my nephews, who I love so much, were going off to school, and they were going to Jesuit universities, uh, Boston College and Holy Cross, a lot of people would say to me, oh, you know, be careful, because, you know, they go to those Jesuits, they lose their faith. Well, interestingly enough, just the opposite happened. They're both uh, convicted in their faith mm -hmm. and, and living it, and, and it's not at all the myth that's out there that, you know, go to these Catholic liberal schools and they're going to lose their way. Uh, where did the myth come from, and, and why is it so untrue? don't know. Um, I, I do think there's a, a struggle between figuring out whether the best way to get young people to opt into faith is by being um, 
as traditional as possible to really double down on mm-hmm. devotion and tradition or whether to be as welcoming as possible in a way that can seem like it's diluting the faith. Yeah. And my experience has been, it's not that there's a perfect answer that we can ever properly know, but my experience has been that when young people come to college, they have the uh, you know, free will, basically, that it's not high school, the days of mandatory mass and dress codes and how long your hair and your skirts are over. So we really have to try to make it um, as likely as possible that that young people will opt into faith, into the church when they mm-hmm. come to college, because if they choose it on their own without their parents um, requiring it of them, then it will be for life, but they really have to choose it. So we give them that freedom and we try to make it as warm and welcoming to both them and to their friends of other faiths so they don't have to choose between their Catholic identity and their other friends who are Mm -hmm. across the spectrum um, and hope that we can really draw them in. And I do think that can give people the misimpression that somehow we don't care, but it's quite the opposite. I've just found that it's more effective a way to persuade students to jump in. Yeah, there's an actor named Kyle MacArthur, a Broadway guy, who went to Regis, and when I asked him what he got from the Jesuits, he said, uh, they never told me what to think, but they taught me how to think, and by mm-hmm. doing that, I came to Christ and to the church, but had they forced it down my throat, I probably would have walked away, but they didn't. Uh, right. th- they made the case for it. Um, for those who don't know, uh, President Tetlow also had an experience of her many, many accomplishments of being a prosecutor, and I, I mention that because about two weeks ago, we had John Gleason on, who had been a federal judge and has written a book now called uh, uh, "What Does He Go?" The Gotti Wars about his his prosecution as a prosecutor of John Gotti, putting him away. But I mentioned that because I, I asked him what I want to ask you: When you're a prosecutor, and let's be honest, it's like all the police in my parish they they see some pretty dark, horrible things in human practice, human nature. What do you do personally with that? Like. Were you able to go home and, and forget what you saw and what you knew? And does it darken your vision of the world or still leave you as a person of hope? It definitely persuaded me that a broader swath of humanity is breaking the law at any mm-hmm. one time. Um, and yeah. of understanding how widespread that is, everything from violent crime to uh. sort of white collar theft and fraud that is rampant. Mm-hmm. But I also, when preparing for trials would get to know some of the defendants who were cooperating and testifying in the case and really had to dig into why did you do what you did because if I needed to understand it if I would persuade the jury to understand it mm-hmm. and um, it it made me less afraid of people who commit crimes more understanding of what their motives were but also a very big believer in there being consequences to action so I found myself able to um, feel very sorry for a lot of the people I prosecuted because if you knew their life Mm. histories, you understood where it came from, but also feel strongly that there needed to be consequences to persuade other people not to make the same choices, to um, stand up for the victims of violent crimes in particular. Um, And so sustaining both um, took some work sometimes, but I do think it's what you're supposed to do. And as a prosecutor, you have more power to do justice than anyone mm-hmm. else in the system. Um, so certainly more than the defense lawyers doing their best um, and and really more than the judge too until it comes time for sentencing because they are the referee of the trial that goes to a jury. But the prosecutor gets to make some pretty big decisions about yeah. what is the right result in this case. 
And um, as hard as that was, as draining morally as that was, I did feel good that I was as well prepared as anyone to try to grapple with those moral choices. When I was in college seminary, I want to re take this, this idea of, of dealing with the guilty and, and what to do with that. And when I was in college, I, I broke one of the rules that in the handbook said could get you thrown out of college. Mm -hmm. And when I went to see the president uh, the day after my infraction, he, he lectured me certainly, but he didn't throw me out. So I said to him, why, why are you not by the handbook, you have the right to throw me out? Why are you not throwing me out? Which was stupid on my part, I should have left well enough alone. But he said to me, uh, he said, because I'm not so old um, that I forget what it is to be young and stupid. And, uh, and, and that's a lesson that stayed with me. Now, I know as president of Gordon University, you're not going to be responsible for disciplining students. There are deans and all that for that. But what is your attitude toward the person who comes to college and, and messes up royally? How should they be handled? Given second and third chances? Or, or is there got to be some standard by which we say, no, this is a bridge too far? I think we lean towards giving second chances, but maybe not mm. third and fourth chances. <laughs> okay. but, um, <laughs> you know, and you, you combine justice with mercy. Yeah. Um, that when we do disciplinary processes in um, schools, it's the ultimate teachable moment, right? There's no, mm -hmm. it, it's a moment you remember from your youth um, so strongly. And so yeah. how to do that well is tricky while preserving our norms. And, you know, you can't have rampant te uh, cheating on tests. You can't have right. rampant myelin on campus, but um, uh, making sure that we are seeing um, the possibility in people to reform and to learn. And I think that for all of us, when we look at the criminal justice system of combining um, basically the kind of justice you would want if someone hurt your family with mm. the kind of justice you would want if your own child did something terribly wrong, right? Yeah. That in the middle somewhere is yeah. the right answer. Yeah. And, yeah. and it can't be true that some of us get fourth and fifth chances and other people never get a second chance that so we really have to think through how to do that well because adolescent brains aren't even fully formed right? <laughs> and the ways they mess up are, are pretty predictable because they're you look at the brain science they're pretty good decision makers when they're calm but when yeah. they're hot when they're angry um, <laughs> the, their frontal cortex doesn't really talk to the primitive part of their brain and they make some really dumb choices as we remember ourselves yes i do have recall of that yes <laughs> uh, president president tanya tetlow is our guest and uh, let me ask you this the yeah. um the experience of your life if anyone goes on and reads your your biography is kind of hard to believe that you've you've served in so many capacities you've worked in so many fields you've accomplished so much but i, ha I have to say that when i read your biography i thought well then you know we always asking the question can everybody do everything can everyone have it all and uh, and i presume that for all the amazing stuff you've accomplished there must be times in which having it all and you have a lot of it uh, must be so hard to balance how in the world do you do it well, carefully, um, mm. I, I think I have a, um, a stepson who's 17 and a daughter who's 10. Right. And um, my husband and I do some juggling with that, to say the least. But I have found that I, my daughter especially, I bring her with me an awful lot um, mm -hmm. to campus, to events. I see her learning from all of it and just taking it in and processing it. And even if there are moments that she's a little bored in the in the moment that I know she's going to look back and have learned some um, amazing things. Mm -hmm. She came with me to 
the Vatican, we brought some of the Fordham board uh-huh. um, to uh, Rome to learn and really dig into faith. And we had a great meeting with um, Cardinal Perlin, um, the Secretary of State of the Vatican, and mm-hmm. she really wanted to come to that. I was going to leave her back with my mom, but she said, okay. So she came and was sitting next to me, very straight and tall, and I gave a speech. And then he read a speech, because English is probably his fifth language, and the room was getting warmer and warmer, and I could see her eyes drooping, and I was kicking her under the table, don't fall asleep, <laughs> <laughs> the speech. But, um, he would I, understand. I think, yeah, I mean, I, I think that... Um, it is an incredibly important part of my work that I understand what it is to be a parent when I deal with Fordham parents, when I think about all sorts of issues. Um, it is a value that makes up for, I think, the ways in which it can be a distraction for my job. But um, it also forces me to stop. Um, and I, I love working. I would work all the time if if I could. But... When she says drop and play Lego, I I do that. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that helps as well, right? That it it creates some balance um, by necessity, which I love. Now, in the process of uh, nurturing those children, uh, you share that experience with Gordon, your husband. Uh, every every year I, I have the privilege of witnessing so many weddings, and I, I don't want to give some generic talk on love and marriage, so I ask the couples to write me an essay of why, when there are a billion people out there you could end up with, why is this the one? Um, why, why Gordon? He makes me laugh. He's huh. so smart. I just never get tired of talking to him. Um, wow. He's he's from Scotland, so mm. he moved from Scotland to New Orleans for me and um, brings that whole other world and culture, which has been such a delight as well. Yeah. And fell in love both with him and his um, son mm-hmm. from a previous marriage. Um, so it's it's been wonderful. Isn't that great? And, and any idea why he's crazy about you? <laughs> we'll have to we'll, some of the same reasons yeah <laughs> now let's uh let's talk about your dad for a little bit for mm-hmm. those who don't know uh lewis her dad was a, a jesuit priest for a number of years before he met and married um tanya's mom and I, i'm just wondering because you know I, i'll put my prejudice right out there i i will hope I would hope that we will return to the days as they did in the early church where we could have both a, a celibate and a married clergy. Having said that, does dad ever talk about that? Like, if they did have that option back then, could he have stayed the Jesuit that he was and also continued to live the life that he shared with your mom? I think he absolutely would have loved to do that. He yeah. was so agonized because he was a Jesuit for 17 years, fully mm-hmm. ordained absolutely delighted in everything about the Jesuits and what he learned and the charism and the faith. And he also felt called to be a husband and a father, I think particularly to be a parent. He really felt that calling. And um, I think in many ways felt so guilty about leaving the church. He he died before I became president of Loyola and now this job, uh, but I can feel him from heaven beaming down because wow. it, he really did so well in raising me to do this role. And yeah. I asked um, his brother, my uncle Joe, who's um, a, a wonderful, well-known Jesuit, he's 91 mm-hmm. years old. Um, oh. We were walking into the missioning mass when I became president of Loyola New Orleans. And I said, so 
can you forgive your brother now? And he <laughs> laughed because <laughs> he did a long time ago, but he said, yeah, no, he, he did a good job, wow. but I think he would have, um, I think he would have brought such value to both roles. Yeah. And wouldn't that be great? And uh, this, this uncle of yours is, is a great guru of spirituality. What's it like to have a member of the family who apparently is in direct contact with God? <laughs> well, I joke that he's my personal Obi-Wan Kenobi from Star Wars because he's the wisest man in the world. Um, it It's the blessing of my life to have him, to be able to pick up the phone and call him to yeah. get his wisdom. I remember one time... Um, one of my favorite moments, I was doing battle with somebody powerful and I couldn't figure out what the right way to handle it was. And and he started the conversation with, well, I'm just so mad at this man, but God loves him for some reason. So let's remember why. <laughs> That's a good thing. I'm going to use that. <laughs> yes. Now, <laughs> I've thought of it often since then. I, I want to ask you too, because I'm thinking of a, a local congressman who said this to me recently. He said, I love my job as a congressman, but I hate that because I have to run every two years, I spend half of my time raising money. Mm -hmm. uh, as a college president now twice, um, I presume that's a big, big part of the job. Um, do you like doing that? Are you good at it? You must be good at it. They gave you the job, but, but how do you feel about it? Like, is it a burden you'd rather ignore or something you welcome? I, um, you know, it's it's hard because you straddle that doing the work of fundraising with running the organization. And if you ran a normal corporation, you would not be doing both. But yeah. what I love about it is that the alumni of both institutions are these um, captains of industry who've had such success in life, who are often the first in their family to go to college. Mm -hmm. And so that makes it just a delight to hear these stories of someone who started out shining shoes in on Arthur Avenue, hmm. who now um, runs a major company and, and loves paying that opportunity forward and talks about how Fordham made all the difference in their life. And mm -hmm. so that those stories just sustain me and make me go back and work ever harder for the students we have now. For parents, grandparents, and students around the world, around the country, who are thinking of the possibility of looking into Fordham University, uh, how do they find out more? Um, go to our website, Okay. Um, talk to your high school guidance counselors, um, just call us. Uh, uh, there's, there's so much we're doing and we have a remarkable student body that comes from all over the world. Isn't that terrific? I want to thank uh, President Tanya Tetlow for being our guest on Personally Speaking. Uh, look her up because she's kind of amazing. There must be, I'm thinking, probably triplets, and they've just been uh, hiding under one name <laughs> because no one can accomplish what she does, and she does it out of a heart of generosity and service, and she does it with a, a true reflection of uh, the greatness of our faith. Um, you're, you're an amazing woman, amazing person, and I'm so grateful you are where you are, and uh, all the best of luck to you at, at Fordham University. Thank you so much. As we end today's program, I want to thank you all for being with us. If you need to reach me, you can write me at personallyspeakingpodcast at gmail.com. You can also go to this show or past episodes by going on YouTube and searching under Personally Speaking with Monsignor Jimosanti, where you'll be able to watch shows as well. And please don't forget to click like and subscribe. Personally Speaking is also on Facebook at Personally Speaking with Monsignor Jimosanti. We're also now on Instagram at Personally Speaking Podcast. Please share and let others know about Personally Speaking. 
I'm privileged to serve as host and executive producer, personally speaking. Our producer is Lisa Jandovitz. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be with you again next time on Personally Speaking.